Leaving comfort is rough, but God was so enamored with us that he left the comfort of heaven. That's pretty local. We didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. So God himself took on a fragile body. God of the universe got the flu and the common cold. He sweated and he bled. He took on haters. He was jumped by soldiers. People spat on him and ultimately murdered him. And in that weak, breakable body, Jesus sat with the contagious and the hurting. He listened, he healed them, he encouraged them, he taught them. And that's where he found us, in the sketchy places you wouldn't take tu familia. And rather than call us hopeless, Jesus pulled us out the gutter, placed hands on the addicted, shady, and diseased people. He looked us in the eyes and called us beloved children. This is the incarnation, God incarnate. God in the meat, God on the block, God on the street. And these are the stories of the people he met. Well, good morning. Love seeing all you guys that are not sick or on vacation. It's a good day. It's a good day to be together. It's a good day to enjoy this weather because I see that for the next two weeks it's going to be warm again. So fall in San Diego, right? So uh, I'm Dale Huntington. I'm our lead pastor for City Life San Diego. I'm excited to be here with you. Um, I'm excited to share with you what I'm learning. Um, And uh, I'm a pastor, but I'm constantly learning and in need of learning. And uh, today we're going to be in Luke 5. 17 through 26. It's Luke 5, 17 through 26. Um, we have Bibles available in the corner if you need one. Nobody should ever feel bad uh, having to look in the table of contents to find out where Luke 5 is. And uh, I hope that you'll follow along with us, maybe on an iPhone, an iPad, an Android, a piece of paper. Uh, I prefer paper, but uh, whatever you have. Today's message is called Tearing Down the House. So, We've heard a lot of stories so far of Jesus healing people, Jesus rebuking people, Jesus going to people and saying, hey, the way you're living doesn't work. Um, Today we're going to have an interesting dialogue with some others. Jesus would often withdraw and he would get out of town. What's starting to happen now is on this occasion, Jesus went out of town to get away from all the things he had been doing and uh, people followed him this time. Jesus got out of town to, to most likely be alone, to prepare, to pray, And what happened? People chased him down. Um, In this case, though, it wasn't that he was just followed, but he was followed by religious people. Some of our favorite people, right? Religious people. Um, In this case, uh, it was rabbis um, who were chasing down a rabbi. It was speakers of the law. It was all these different people that would be considered the leaders and the influencers of Israel that were chasing down Jesus because they wanted to hear about these supposed miracles that he was doing. They had heard he was doing stuff, and they had heard he was kind of a little sketchy. He was saying some things that didn't quite fit in their idea of what Judaism should look like. So there they were, ready to listen to Jesus. Now, the only way I can think about this is, um, I'm a San Diego fan, okay? So I, I cheer for teams from San Diego. Um, that also means that I'm not a Los Angeles Chargers fan e- anymore, even though I was for my entire life, even though I was in my mother's womb, a fan of the Chargers. 
There are some people like me that take it a little further. I just decided I'm done watching the Chargers. There are other people that do something called hate watching. Have you ever heard of this, hate watching? It's where people will watch the games just to hope that Philip Rivers will throw an interception. Um, it's the people who watch and cheer for their opponents. What a sad and angry existence these people have. Um, this is much like the leaders who are present with Jesus at this moment, who are here to watch him trip up, who are here to see what he says wrong more than what he says right. They're looking for a slip-up. They're looking for a problem. They're looking for a weakness so they can attack him. This is hate-watching. And because he's surrounded by them, he's surrounded by religious people, surrounded by religious leaders, nobody else can get to him. The people who desperately need Jesus at that moment are shut out from seeing him, from touching him. And then something happens. And that's what we're going to be reading from today. Luke 5, 17 through 26. On one of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees, so we know Pharisees being religious leaders, right? Okay. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power was in him to heal. Just then some men came carrying a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on a stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this is in your hearts? This in your hearts. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Then everyone, everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. Would you pray with me? Father, you are so welcoming to the weak. God, even when people try to set up boundaries around you, you break them down. You are the helper to those in need. You have welcomed us outcasts into your family. Thank you for the hope that you've given us. There is no other name under the sun that gives us that hope but yours, and we celebrate you this morning. Would you speak truth to us? Would you speak justice? Would you do damage in our hearts where you want to do damage? Would you give us healing where we desperately need healing? Would you teach us from your word and help us to leave stronger, more faithful, and ready to follow you however you may call? May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, in order to teach you about this particular story, I think I have to go to a different story in the Bible. Um, and, uh, you know, if you ever sit and there's a preacher who gives you one line of the Bible and then calls it good, I would run. So usually I like to use lots of scripture to interpret the scripture because 
Uh, I'm not always smart, and I'm also kind of like wanting to twist things in my direction. So the more I use scripture, the more I feel like it's harder for me to twist. It's harder for me to, to make you believe exactly what I want to believe, and it's more likely that I will get changed by the word of God. So I'll just read to you from Luke 4, 16 through 22. This is another story of Jesus, just a chapter earlier in the Bible. It's Luke 4, 16 through 22. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So you want to know why these guys were hate watching? It's because Jesus, just a chapter before, we don't know when it was, had said, hey, this prophecy, yeah, it's about me. And, and, and I think, you know, they kind of heard it like, yeah, this, this is about me, you know? And so, so these guys are upset. They feel like this is an attack upon their system. You know who's been in power this whole time? Them. And suddenly Jesus is coming and saying, yeah, actually the power is given to the weak. That God's grace is given to the poor. That those who would need to be brought in on a stretcher are the ones who are loved by God. And while you religious people may think you're loved by God, you're just trying to do all you can do to earn it. And that's not the way Jesus rolls, is it? So Jesus had laid down the gauntlet. He let the people know that this was happening. He let them know what was coming. And so the hate watchers had come out in full force. They were surrounding him. But someone in need gets through to Jesus, and suddenly everything changes. And so today I have two points for friends who follow Jesus. I use the word friends intentionally. Two points for friends who follow Jesus. And my first point is this. These friends did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. These friends did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. Those are good friends, right? Those are friends who care. Verse 19, since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles in the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. These friends dragged their buddy all the way to Jesus. They weren't going home. They would tear the roof off to get their friend to him. These are good friends. Now, the problem is, is that we have men outside with a friend in true need, and they cannot heal him. They can't do this for him. No matter how awesome his friends are, there's nothing they can do. Inside is the answer to their prayers, and they can't get in. Now, scholar Justo Gonzalez says it this way. The problem is that while these people sit around Jesus to listen to his teachings, and perhaps also to discuss them, outside the house there are others in need people who cannot reach Jesus, precisely because these people are sitting around him, listening to him. That's beautiful. And, and you know what? I think sometimes I tend to go at it from a different perspective. I tend to go at it from like the friends who pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and I forget that there are people trying to keep others away, or inadvertently keeping others away from Jesus. But his friends who have the ability to walk, lift, and carry him to do whatever they can to get their friend in the presence of the one who can heal 
They might have dragged him on a cart or a wheelbarrow. We have no idea how long it was. Can you imagine that? Them carrying their friend across the town, them carrying their friend miles and miles just to get in there. I like to think there were four of them. I have no idea. Um, But this would have been a hard, arduous trip. I doubt that he just happened to live next door. They were probably exhausted when they arrived. Just get him to Jesus. Just get him to Jesus and he'll be cool. And then what happens? They get there, he's surrounded. You're not getting in. Sorry, sold out. Should have got tickets early, right? But they seem to love their friends so much that this real hope that they had in Jesus caused them to do incredible things. Now what's amazing here is it says next, it says that Jesus responds to their faith. That is something that vexes me, right? Because, like, you know, a lot, a lot of times we talk about, um, and, you know, if you want to get into, like, theology and stuff like that, this can get into, like, some dicey areas. But I just don't think God always, like, belongs in this little box. Um, uh, there's a pastor I know who says that when you try to stuff God into a box, he leaks out. And so here is a case where it doesn't say that the man asked for forgiveness and was, and was given forgiveness, does it? It says that Jesus offered forgiveness to this man based on their faith. Now, I did a word study. I didn't, I didn't get my um, masters of the divinity to learn about these words, and so I have to do like a lot of searches, and I have to understand what a lot of scholars say about it, and I have to research. And when I researched, this is what I learned um, it means. When it says their faith, the word there, it means there. So it didn't help me so much. Because what, what I was hoping is that it would tell me that it was his friend's faith or his friend's and his faith that caused him to be forgiven. But there's no clarity there. But what's interesting is it doesn't say his. So I think it's interesting that you have a community surrounding a man and either it's um, their faith and his or their faith that causes him to be forgiven. Now, is that the way God works all the time? I don't, I don't, I'm, all I'm saying is what happened. And what happened is because of the faith of these men and because they were willing to bring him before Jesus, to fight, to crawl, to scratch, to, to, to climb up onto a roof so that he could get before Jesus, his sins were forgiven. I did a word search and I didn't find anything, but I can tell you that this could be referring to these guys and a vicarious healing. Now I'm going to say could be. I'm going I'm to leave that open for anyone who wants to attack my theology. We can go at it later. Now, this idea of a vicarious healing. Um, have you ever heard the term vicar? Vicar is like the old term they would use for like a priest or a pastor um, who would vicariously take on the faith of the people and encourage them with it. Here we have some guys who are vicariously bringing them, their friend to God and God is forgiving him. Is it the faith of the group or is it the faith of the man? I don't know. And I don't know if anybody can tell you what it truly is. But I do know that it's hard to drag a friend um, without his help. (laughs) So uh, even though he was paralyzed, man, if he were like cursing at them the whole way, I think that would be different. It seems to me that he is um, okay with it. But we have such little information. So that's interesting to me, maybe not as much to you. But what I can say is that your prayers for your friends can change the world. I've had people praying for their children that will move next door to me. And we will 
begin to, to talk about the gospel, and we will begin to share Jesus with them. And then one day at a barbecue, we'll have a parent, and this has happened multiple times, a parent pull us aside and say, we've been praying for our kid to be around Christians forever. We've been praying for them to be around a believer forever, and we believe that God answered our prayers with you. And I'm always like, cool, no pressure. Um, but I can say that the same thing happens to me when I will pray and pray. I remember praying for this young man who had moved away to Kansas City, and we were just praying for him and praying for him and praying for him. He was a friend. Uh, he was a friend's son, and the friend um, would ask for prayer every single week, and we would pray, and he would say, you know what? He met a pastor, my atheist son met a pastor, and uh, they've been friends with them for a year now. Like, and then something didn't happen, and, and so then he, he kind of went back to his old living. And then uh, we prayed again, and then he met another pastor. I, I don't think pastors should be the way that everybody comes to know Jesus, but it just so happened that he answered our prayers, and this young man got baptized, and he's leading in his church now. This guy that we were praying for because God provided something else. How beautiful is that? When we pray, we can change the world. Amen. And I love that they tear the roof off, don't you? There's a time and a place for manners, isn't there? There's a time and a place for manners. This is not the time for manners. I once worked at a church where we decided to have a mission statement. And the mission statement was interrupting our culture so others might come to know Jesus. And there was, I mean, you would, there was an angry mob that showed up when they heard that we would dare interrupt. Interrupting is rude, is, is what they would say to me. And I would say, heck yes. And if I have a friend who has a heroin addiction and he wants to stick a needle into his arm and I'm there and I can stop him, you better believe I'm going to interrupt him because I love him, because I care for him. So yes, there's a time and place for manners. This is not it. There's a time and place to wait your turn. This is not it. This was not it for these friends. Removing the tiles was a sign of a couple things. One, presumption that they should get an audience with Jesus. Presumption that they deserved an audience with Jesus. They were willing to, to put everyone else through that because they thought Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. That is what I believe. It's not written. But he was their hope, and so they were willing to be a little bit rude. It was audacity that they should offend the homeowner and interrupt. It was audacity. And finally, I think it was amazing faith that they would bring this guy where Jesus is. And here's why I think it's amazing faith. Because Jesus said it was. That's why I'm going to go with it. It was amazing faith that these men would do this. Some of you know I have shamelessly pursued you, like annoyingly. However, I believe God calls us to pursue people and because the time is short, I'm going to be a bit shameless and reckless about it because tomorrow is not a promise. And that is, I believe, how we are called to pursue those around us. If we truly believe Jesus is the way, then we should pursue people and we should fight and claw and sometimes be rude. And I'm not talking about the arrogant, mean rude. I'm talking about the interruption in the night, like, I love you so much, please don't do this. I love you so much, there's a better way. That's the kind of root I think we should be, not the like sitting above them and judging them. So this is why I pray for people. And this is why I pursue people until sometimes people will say to me, stop. And that is the point where I will stop and I will trust God and I will pray. But if someone is a part of our church, I promise you that I will pursue them in that way. And I, I think we should all be doing the same thing. No one should ever come here to this place or to one of our homes and feel lonely. 
There are enough aloof people in the world. I would rather Christians be known as people that pursue to the point of embarrassment, to the point of being rude. You know, I look at the, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I tell you, when a Jehovah's Witness shows up to my house, I sigh, right? And then they say, uh, uh, do you speak any Spanish? And I say, no. And then they leave, and I, yes, you know. And, and, I, and when they come to my house, I feel like they're so rude. They're so rude to presume that I need their Jehovah's Witnessy stuff. But you know what? I think they embarrass us as Christians. I think they embarrass us, the way they hit the pavement, the way they seek to love people. Now, if they're trying to do it to earn a place in God's kingdom, we know that you can't earn a place in God's kingdom. But if there is some of them, or there's some of them, or even the Mormons who go to um, different people all over the world with, a, with an energy to save them because we believe that God desires to save them, then we should be ashamed of ourselves, that we don't do so much more than them. So, it's important to note, though, here, that even when we go door to door, even when we go to our, our friends and our family and we bring the good news, um, we don't save them. These men did not save their friend. They brought their friend to Jesus, right? They didn't know what Jesus would do. They just took him to the feet of Jesus with an expectation that something cool would happen. Reminds me of, uh, was that The Incredibles? When he's picked up a car in front of a little kid and the little kid comes to him and he says, what are you waiting for? What are you looking for? And he's like, I just want something amazing to happen. That's how it should be when we place someone at the feet of Jesus. When we take people to Jesus, we expect something amazing to happen. You better believe that's not in my notes. Um, now, you guys know the Apostle Paul, right? You guys have heard of him. Now, this dude took beatings all the time for his faith. It's called the 40 minus 1. Have you guys heard of this? The 40 minus 1. It was believed that uh, if you took 40 lashes on your back, most likely there'd be a good chance you would receive an infection and you would die. So what did they do? Paul got 39. Because they could be sure that he probably wouldn't die from that. Paul got it on multiple occasions. Paul was shipwrecked for the gospel. Paul was thrown into prison for the gospel. Many times they left Paul for dead. Paul was uh, bitten by a snake for the gospel. Here in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, we see why. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being one outside the law, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. This guy's a master of the run-on sentence, right? To the weak I became weak, and that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Dude, he is saying, like, it doesn't matter what it takes. Like, I will do anything. I will do anything to understand the saving grace that I believe. If we believe this, and should we not consider tearing the roof off of someone's house because we love them more than we care about the way they're going to think about us? Please don't take this literally. You could knock on the door. It'll be okay. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Paul didn't just do this. He taught us to do this. I'm going to give you a real extreme example that the dudes are going to, dudes are going to get, especially. Acts 16, 1 through 3. 
Check out what Paul urged Timothy to do so that he might win some for Jesus, so that he might help some people get to the feet of Jesus. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, y'all. So there's other places in the scripture that say, hey, hey, guys that are Greek that become Christians, you don't need to be circumcised. Like, that's not a thing you have to do. And here, Timothy is circumcised. It's in the Bible, so I think we should talk about it. Uncomfortably so. Here, Timothy is circumcised. Why? Is it because God will accept circumcised people? Uh Uh-uh. No. Why? It's because the Jews will. The men that they are trying to share the gospel with will accept him and hear his message even better. So that's worse than tearing down a house. That's, that's, a, that's a, a commitment. <clears throat> so if you have a car, you can pick up people for church or city group. That's not what Timothy had to go through, right? If you can afford luxuries, why not use it to invite someone to church and then take them to lunch? Or maybe you just need to have them for dinner. Whatever it is, those people we see every day matter. And if they truly matter, we should tell them about Jesus. And if it takes sacrifice for us to tell them about Jesus, that sacrifice should be made, friends. I heard a pastor say, if you personally love everything our church does, then we are doing it wrong. If you personally love everything our church does, then we are doing it wrong. Maybe, maybe let me explain that to you just a little bit. We're going to try to do things for those who are not necessarily always here. There's a reason why if you don't speak Spanish and you feel uncomfortable during those songs, there's a reason we do it. Because we're surrounded. 65% of this neighborhood has Hispanic people and we're trying to, to reach them. We're trying to show love to them. We're trying to show them that they matter to us. Um, guys, I, I, I was in a touring uh, worship band and I was in a punk band before that. I can tell you that I could do punk And I can do, like, rock worship. And I can do it in my sleep with my eyes closed, for real. But that's not going to be enough for this neighborhood. Because we desire to show this neighborhood and the other uh, varied neighborhoods of San Diego that they matter. And so what that means is, there's going to be times when we're going to do more gospel than anything else. And if you don't like gospel, bummer. Why do we do it? Because there are people in this neighborhood that like gospel. If you don't like rock and roll worship, we're going to do rock and roll worship more than others sometimes. Why? Because there are people in this community that like that the most. Constantly for others, constantly for the lost, constantly for the people who are not present in this room, we are going to bend for them. We are going to tear the roof off of the way we do things because we love them, because we care for them, and because we believe that Jesus truly, truly saves So friends, um, they got their buddy to Jesus, and then something happened, right? Jesus' miracle showed his glory, and that is our second point. Jesus' miracle showed his glory. Verse 21, then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know at that point that they were ready. They were like trigger happy, waiting for Jesus just to say something. 
And he did. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and walk? So who can forgive, they ask. God. God can forgive. And to show them that Jesus is God, he healed. A couple cool things here. One, Jesus knew their thoughts. Like, how rad is that? Jesus perceived what they were thinking. And I would say Jesus did it by the power of the Holy Spirit within him. That he was listening to the Holy Spirit. He was listening to God um, who was there in spirit and he was getting advice. Um, The cool thing is because Jesus was man, he did the things that we can do. So we can listen up for what God might be speaking to us. Secondly, um, he's having a debate with people who are silent. How cool is that? There's this moment where um, he's saying to them, yes, dude, you guys actually got this right. Way to go. No one can do this but God. (laughs) Good job. Their thoughts were correct, but they were misapplying it. They were trying to apply it to Jesus as if he were just some dude off the street. And the cool thing is, he is some dude off the street, but he's God at the same time. This earned power was based on Jesus' willingness to be weak. So why? How did he do this? Well, we understand this is the whole idea of the incarnation, God incarnate, right? God in the meat. That God willingly left the perfection of heaven. That the Father said, hey, you want to go down there? And Jesus said, I want to go down there. I want to be there. I want to be in a body that is broken. I want to be in a body that is breakable. I want to be in a body that is bone and sinew and flesh and skin. And, and, and Jesus did that willingly knowing that he would get sick. He would get hurt, he would be abused, he would be spat upon. This is what we call the gospel, right? It's just the good news, that's all it really means. This is the good news of the gospel, the good news of the good news. And this is what we celebrate, and this is what we take people to. This good news is for everyone. And it's something that we should tear down the house for. And if you have never accepted the gospel as truth, and said to God, I choose to follow you. Or perhaps you did, and you've just been walking away, and you've just been sitting on your little mat, and you've been waiting for someone to drag you to Jesus, and someone did. Maybe today is the day you say, Lord, I believe your gospel, and I want to follow you. That's a good place to be, isn't it? It's a good place to be. Because you're with the one and only God who can forgive Your money can't forgive you. Your power can't forgive you. Your parents can't forgive you. Not in the way that you need. Jesus is reconciling everyone to himself. Says that we were enemies with God, and here we find that we not only are no longer enemies, but we're not servants anymore, but we're family. It says that we are co... um, Why can't I think of that word? Co-heirs with Christ. Come on. You know, I do like it when people shout back, so maybe I just need to forget more so you guys will shout back at me. Friends, Jesus wants to work miracles in your life, but is he the last resort? This dude has probably been crippled for some time. The lady we talked about that had been bleeding for 12 years and been to every skeezy, fake doctor available went to Jesus as a last resort. Men who had been blind since birth sought out Jesus, men who had been blind since birth. We're not talking about six-year-olds, we're talking about men, which means they went to him eventually. Where do you fit in here? What are you wrestling with currently? Why would you do everything on earth you can before you take it to Jesus? Maybe I should change that. Why would I 
do everything on earth I can before I take it to Jesus. Your money problems, your problems at school, your problems with your boyfriend, girlfriend, your arguments, your marriage. Why would you seek out everything else before you take that to Jesus? And I promise you, I'm the worst offender. So I played in a, a baseball when I was in eighth grade in something called Pony League. Pony League was like higher up than Little League, okay? So <clears throat> just so you know. When I played Pony League, I played first base, and I was a very, very average hitter. Um, I used to read books on how to fix my swing. I used to watch Tony Gwynn instructional tapes. They were hilarious, you guys. Like, Tony Gwynn would uh, get on first base, and uh, now when you want to steal, this is what you're going to do. And then they would start playing the, the soundtrack from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It was so cheesy, you know, doo 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 so I used to watch these videos. I used to read these books, and my swing never got better. Now, uh, what's funny is there was one person who could really help me, but I just, I just didn't feel comfortable going to him. He might judge me and my crappy swing. He might make fun of me, which is weird that I would think that, or he just might be too busy for me. I had a grandfather who was an expert in baseball, I had a grandfather that would take me down onto the field to meet the players, would take me into the dugout to meet the players, that took me into the locker room to meet my favorite player, David Justice. You guys, if you stay at this church for 10 years, you're going to hear like every like six weeks the fact that I met David Justice in the locker room. <clears throat> but that was my grandpa, and he had connections, and he knew about sports, and he wrote about sports. And uh, he was old, and I just thought, you know, he wouldn't have time. He was kind of sick. Um, he had throat cancer because of his... Uh, because um, he had smoked so long, and so he had one of those cool machines where he talked like this. And that was my grandpa. And I remember thinking, Dad, I don't know what to do. I can't fix my swing. I stink. I stink. And what I was doing is uh, I was doing something called stepping in the bucket. I don't know if anybody's heard baseball. So say you're, you're a batter like this, right? Okay, so I'm face, oh, I got face you. Okay, so I'm batting like this. When a pitch came, what would happen is, is I would step out here and then swing which meant if someone was pitching it right over the plate, I might still miss it because I was stepping away. I don't know. I wasn't scared of the ball. It was just a natural thing that I did, which was stupid, but natural, right? So I'm here talking to my dad. I was like, Dad, I don't know what to do anymore. Like, I need an expert, but I don't know who to go to. And my dad's like, what? You, you need an expert, but you don't know who to go to? You go to your grandpa Fred, right? So he took me to my grandpa Fred's house in Vista. The grandpa who would take me to the dugout, the locker room, that grandpa... Um, and I talked to him about my problem, and he's like, oh, I can fix that in like 10 seconds. So Grandpa Fred said, okay, grab the bat, and he's like, and he littered a whole bunch of baseballs behind me, and then he started throwing baseballs at me, and he said, I, I want you to swing, and I just remember like, I would have the baseball come at me, I'd step on the balls behind me, and I'd fall straight on my butt. It took like three times before I learned to not step in the bucket, and instantly it was fixed. But for some reason, I thought I should go to someone else. I should read a book. I should ask my coach who really doesn't even know like what baseball is. That's what I should do. And ultimately, because of his help, I became the most successful JV baseball hitter in my high school history that had my name and DNA. <laughs> <laughs> I, played, I played up to my junior year, and I was terrible, y'all. <clears throat> I was very good defensively, but no, it was not happening. I was bad. So here's the thing. Ephesians 2, 17 through 20 says this. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Friends, don't look to crystals. Don't, like, doctors are great. You should go to doctors. That's cool. You should do that. But we have to go to Jesus. You can go to a doctor and go to Jesus at the same time, but don't wait until you've exhausted all your options before you go to Jesus and say, help me. So what are you wrestling with? Stop taking it everywhere else. Stop trying to self-medicate. We don't need other things as much as we need him. Now, looking at verse 24 for a moment, Jesus says, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man. I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. It's important to remember that those around us might need to see something to give God's glory. There are people around us who will make fun of Jesus all the time. Oh my gosh, like, I don't even know. It's like, should I follow them on Facebook so I know where they're at? Or like, should I just like stop because I'm sick of their jokes? These men who were just leering and probably jeering at Jesus, the men who were doubting Jesus though, because of a miracle, what happened? It says they gave glory to God. It says they were astounded because of this simple miracle. Like Jesus did much greater things than that, right? He brought a man from the dead. He brought a child back from the dead. This small miracle, and they gave glory to God and were astounded. Those who had come to hate on him suddenly became believers. Back then, suffering and sin were linked. This is probably why he went about this. But we know that not necessarily, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes when we suffer, it draws us to God. And in this case, it absolutely drew this man to God. But sometimes you just need proof, don't you? We're just like that uh, generation that Jesus called wicked when he talked about how they constantly seek a sign from Jesus if they're going to trust God. And of course, sometimes when God does miraculous things in our life, we forget real quick. But I tell you, I tell you, so often we need proof, don't we? This is who we are. I think probably it comes from our, our importance of science in our life, where we need to see facts. We need to look at statistics and all these things. And so our generation needs proof. Now, uh, you guys know, some of you guys know I'm, I have celiac disease, <clears throat> which means I'm allergic to, uh, to gluten. And I was just at this, uh, this uh, cohort the other day, and um, the pastor said that I had uh, gluten fragility. That's what he said. Um, <clears throat> but when I eat gluten, it gets bad real fast. And I will excuse myself and leave you. When food comes out at a restaurant and it looks really, really good, I usually ask, is this gluten-free? And oftentimes the waiter will say, oh, yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, totally, totally gluten-free or whatever. Or like even better is when they're like, totally glucose-free, bro. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you don't even know what it's called. Go take it back. <clears throat> if I'm going to eat something, if I'm going to put something in my body, I want proof. I want them to go back to the manager. I want them to go back to the chef and make sure that this thing is not going to make me sick for the next day. <clears throat> so the first time I went to Buena Forqueta, <clears throat> it's a place in uh, South Park, 
and I asked for a gluten-free pizza. They came out and it was like puffy and like cheesy and like just, it looked amazing. And I sent it back to the kitchen. And I said, this is too good to be true. This is not gluten-free. Please bring me a gluten-free pizza. And they came back and said, oh, the chef, he says it's it's gluten-free. And I said, I don't believe you. And so they had to bring out the package for me. They had to bring out the package for me and show me the ingredients on the package of flour that they use. Because sometimes, sometimes we just need proof. And when I saw that awesome pizza and I got the proof, man, that was awesome. But sometimes you just need proof, and it shows your lack of faith. And I did not have faith in a new restaurant that I had never been to. Jesus meets us we are at, though. Not because we deserve it, not because we demand it like I demanded of the chef at Buena Forqueta, um, but because he is loving. Jesus knew the miracle would silence even his harshest critics, who may or may not have been there to just prove them wrong. You may have people in your life who doubt. They may doubt Jesus. They may doubt you. But when God takes control of our lives, miracles happen. Our addictions can disappear when miracles happen, when he takes control. We can be healed of deep psychological wounds. God unifies enemies. We are given freedom from physical pain. I'm not saying this is going to happen every time, but I'm saying we should go to him every time about this, shouldn't we? And no matter how dumb people think God is, they have to stop and say, like even if their enemies are here to watch him fall, they have to go, that's really cool. That's really cool. When Jesus works miracle in our lives, it's hard for them to go, that's dumb, that's fake. It is then that we let them know it is Christ who did it. It is Christ who is the hope of glory. It is Christ who healed me. Friends, I stand before you today because Christ was strong enough to save even me. But where is the desperation? Where is the tearing down the house for my neighbors? Do we truly believe in hell? I believe in hell. Before I was a Christian, I thought hell was the dumbest idea I had ever heard. Really? Fire, brimstone, guys in like red pajamas with pitchforks? That's not real. And yet the more I understand the Bible and the more I understand the heart of God, the more I understand a loving God who would not force you to be in his presence, the more I understand that someone would go to hell and they would gnaw at their own, uh, their own tongue, that they would, uh, sh- uh, they would grind their teeth in agony out of the absence of God's love and presence in their midst, the more I understand that, the more I see that he is loving and he pursues you He pursues you that you might follow him and call him Lord and Savior. Not because he's vain. Not because he thinks, not because he's got a counter where he's just saying, oh, here, I've got this person on my list now, but because he adores you. He doesn't want a servant. He wants a family member who would serve him out of love and thankfulness. Do we truly believe in hell? Guys, if the percentages are right, then 90% of our community here in San Diego is going to hell. I would like to believe that God at the end of time would say to them all like, hey, here's the information, you missed out, let's go, come on. But all I have is the Bible and it doesn't say that. So let me close with this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Schindler's List. I'm gonna end on a real positive note. Um, But Schindler's List is about a real man named Oscar Schindler. I've seen the movie once and did not want to ever see it again. I don't know about you guys. Have a couple movies like that. Million Dollar Baby, I was like, this is amazing. Never want to see it again. Schindler's List, same way. Well, Oscar Schindler did whatever he could 
for those around him. Oskar Schindler was a Nazi business owner during World War II. And in the movie Schindler's List, we see his journey to where he finds that he can rescue many Jewish people and bring them in his factory for cheaper work, really only so that he might save them from the wrath that is coming from Hitler. He's taking those who are destined for death and employing them. Now, since his factories were considered important to the war effort, he was given some leeway. But Schindler employed Polish men and women, Jewish men and women, and he even preserved disabled people who were considered unhelpful to society and should be eliminated. That is what Oskar Schindler did. And there's a, there's a moment at the end of the movie where Schindler sits there. He knows that the Germans have lost the war. And he's there with his workers surrounding him. He's got his right-hand man presenting him with a letter and a gift saying thank you. And Schindler thinks to himself, I could have done more. It's too late to do any more now. I could have done more. I just want to read you just a little bit from that ending. Schindler, I could have got more out. I could have got more. I don't know if I just, uh, if I just, I could have got more. His number one man, Itzhak Stern, says this, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. Schindler, if I'd made more money, I threw away so much money. You have no idea. I just, Stern, there will be generations because of what you did. Schindler, I didn't do enough. Stern, you did so much. Schindler looks at his car. This car, Goethe would, bought this, would have bought this car. Why did I keep this car? Ten more people right there. Ten more people. Schindler removing the Nazi pin from his lapel. This pin, two people. This is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for it, at least one. One more person. A person, Stern, for this. Sobbing. I could have got one more person, and I didn't. And I didn't. Friends, I don't want us to ever have those kind of regrets as a church. Where we would have said, if I just considered spending more time with this person, if I was just not afraid to share my hope with this person, perhaps they would be with Jesus today. I don't know if when we get to heaven we're going to have that kind of like looking back sadness, but I can tell you I don't want it. I don't want there to be anything on my conscience where I could have loved someone well who was annoying, where I could have invited someone into my home that was lonely or hurting or in pain. I don't want that regret. Now once more we hear from Justo Gonzalez. The people who brought the paralyzed man could probably have elbowed their way into the circle if they had been willing to leave behind the lame man in his bed. If they had only been seeking their place in the circle, it might have been easy, but they were not. Their commitment was such that either they entered together or they would not enter. Friends, do we have a commitment to those around us? Church might be different for you, but we're not going to mind it because of those around us who might be blessed and come to hear of the saving knowledge of Jesus. Are we willing to say to the person next to me or the person not yet here that they are more important than us for the sake of their salvation, for the sake of the gospel? If you are far from Jesus, friend, I tell you, we would do anything for you. But ultimately, we won't save you. We will draw you to Jesus and say, embrace Jesus because he loves you and he can do all the things we can't. 
Turn to him. He is your only hope. If you are a believer, don't let dumb things get in the way of sharing the most important thing in the world with those around you. Don't let it happen. And so, on that positive note, let me close us in prayer. Father, we love you so much. And God, for those who are in the room that are far from you at the moment, who feel far from you, that follow you, who feel a sense that they cannot get it right, who don't know what to do because they feel like their options are gone, Lord, would we turn to you? Would we seek solace and love in you? God, we know that you are faithful and just and that your love is good and that you welcome us into your family. Would you remind us of that? For those in the room who are far from Jesus but want to be closer, pray with me this moment and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Be Lord of my life. Comfort me and teach me and help me to follow you all of my days. For those of you who follow Jesus, we're just going to take a moment of silence to confess our sins to God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as long as our list is, your arm is not too short to save. You don't look at us and see us as damaged. You don't look at us and see us as unredeemable. You look at us and, Father, you see the goodness, the righteousness of your son Jesus, and you call us good in your sight. Oh, that's so good because we're messed up. When the time comes for us to do the right thing, we don't. We treat each other like crap. We treat ourselves like we are less than your image. And yet you look at us and you hold us, you pull us up by our face from the gutter and from the dirt and you say, child, I love you. And God, that means so much. And so we thank you this morning that you forgive us, that as far as the east is from the west, so our sin is from your sight. God, help us to remember your goodness. Help us to know it in the depths of our heart that you love us. Help us to move forward with peace and surrender. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.